This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Hello, Emmaus! Welcome to the gathering. Happy Sunday. The weather's beautiful. Just a couple of quick announcements before we get started. Today and every last Sunday of the month is our women's ministry time. So if you want to come back here from four to six and hang out with other ladies, you're welcome to do that. And next week, Kent is going to be preaching. So we have a guest preacher next week. And then the following week, which is March 14th, we're going to do a big new branding reveal. And everyone should come because cool things are going to happen. So that's what's coming up. The scripture reading for today is 1 Corinthians 10, and you can follow along with me on the screen or in your own Bibles. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that flowed from them, and the rock was Christ." Nevertheless, with the most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to go to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. It's exciting to get to worship with you guys today. 
Oh, that's a little too far. That's what Ben was trying to avoid last week. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, Paul gives us at least four chapters in Corinthians because it's, if it was only that easy. Uh, I enjoy the fact that we've opened our mezzanine section. So, <laughs> so when you register online, if you, uh, uh, if you see a section to choose the mezzanine, it's, uh, then the, that's where you, where you go. So uh, it's, a, uh, it's good. We, want, we try to have some extra seats for people that don't register. We want to welcome people if they, if they show up and they're not registered. And so it's nice to have some volunteers uh, sit up top and, and we have some space in case there's some people who walk in. So I do appreciate that. Um, even though I'm a little bit, I think next time I don't preach, I'm going to want to sit on that couch. So, so yeah, I said, th- I'm getting a thumbs up from up there. Um, sometimes I feel like how I start a sermon uh, with jokes or whatever is probably directly correlative to how intense the passage is. So, so this is my, my attempt to, to lighten things up a little bit before we jump into what is a, which is a pretty difficult passage. Um, and I may sound like a broken record over the last few weeks as I've been saying that about 1 Corinthians. And a big part of that is since the middle of chapter 6, uh, Paul has really kind of been helping the Corinthians wrestle with two things. We've been going back and forth around two things. We've been talking about how we deal with sin and how we fix our eyes on the glory and the beauty and the wonder of our creator. So, so for, for, about four and a, for about four chapters now, we've been talking about how do we wrestle with sin? And at the same time, because these things are, these are two concepts that can't be separated. You, you can't fix your eyes on the beauty and the glory of our creator in a way that's, that's fulfilling, that brings peace, that brings joy, unless on the other side, you're also dealing with sin. And you can't deal with sin without ultimately fixing your eyes on the glory and the beauty of our creator. So we've had about four chapters of wrestling with these things is, is how do we deal with sin? And he kind of closes out this section in, in chapter 10 and what we just read. He closes out this section with some kind of weighty things. He closes out this section by saying, if you're part of the community of God, if you're part of the, the, the gathered family of God and you're not dealing with sin, then that's not a safe place to be. He says, if you're part of the community of God and you're not dealing with sin, that's not a safe place to be. And, and I, wanna, I wanna be clear in some, in a, in a super real sense, this is the safest place. This should be the safest place to expose our sin. This should be the, the most comfortable place to know that we fall short of the glory of God, that, that we don't actually meet the standard that God has required. Because as, as believers who gather, we sing these songs, we worship, we read scripture, and everything that we do is just a, is just a reflection of the reality that we are not sufficient that we are not sufficient. So in every way, our Emmaus uh, church family, our brothers and sisters in Christ should be the most safe place where we can deal with our sin. But what Paul is saying in this passage, what Paul is really trying to hit on here is if we're not dealing with our sin, if we're in the family of God and we're not dealing with our sin, then it's actually not a safe place to be. It's actually not a safe place to be. And he reminds us kind of at the end of this passage after bringing us to some really difficult examples in the history of of the Old Testament, really difficult examples of how God has dealt with his 
his family, as we move through the Old Testament, he reminds us of our purpose. So we're gonna talk about the, the danger or the fact that sin is not safe for those of us who are in the family of God. We're gonna talk about how sin is not safe. And then Paul's gonna give us two reasons why. And it's gonna be, it's gonna be tough, I think, a little bit, um, but I hope as we move through this passage, we'll see, we'll see pieces of the gospel. And as we are, are humbled, as we are dealing with the difficult topic of our sin, at the end of the day, we'll, we'll leave uplifted. We'll leave more encouraged because of how committed Christ is to changing us. We'll leave more encouraged because of how, how zealous, how excited, how intent Jesus is on transforming his family. So we are gonna kind of go to some some low places as we talk about the danger of not dealing with our sins, but I hope, to, I hope to leave us on a high note as we talk about the wonder and the beauty of God because we can't do those things separate from each other. We have to focus on the wonder and the beauty and the glory of God at the same time we deal with the, the, the tough reality that if we're not dealing with sin in the family, then that's not, ultimately that's not a safe place to be. So as we, as we go to this passage, we're just gonna walk through, I just wanna... We're being, we're, the series is called Being Taught by the Spirit. So as I think about the weight of this passage, um, let's pray, let's ask that Spirit to teach us what he's saying in his word so at the end of the day, we can be more obsessed with and more comforted by the beauty and the glory of our creator. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can come before you, Lord. I thank you that I am not sufficient Thank you that anyone, no one sitting here is sufficient and yet you have made your dwelling place in us by your spirit, Lord. I thank you that you, you live in us so that we could understand your word, so that we could see your glory, so that we could actually deal with sin uh, in the family, Lord, because it isn't safe, because you care. I pray as we work through this passage, Lord, that you would humble us where we need to be humbled and that you would lift us up where we need to be lifted up because we aren't sufficient, Lord. And I thank you for that reality that you, you have made us sufficient in your son in the gospel. So I thank you for that. Uh, give us wisdom as we just walk through this passage and in your name I pray, amen. All right, so let's look at the first few verses. Starting at chapter 10, we'll look at verses one through four. Um, we'll put the verses of the actual passage on the screen. I may jump to another passage here or there, a quote here or there. That won't be on the screen, but uh, we just try to put the passages up on the screen. It's also easier if I'm going kind of fast to just follow along on your Bibles as well. I'll try to kind of go through it in a, in a way that's easy to follow. But the first four verses, he says, for I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the same spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And I, I, I kind of want to go off on a whole sermon about how Paul uses the Old Testament, and we've had intensives on that. We have a book if you're interested in, in some of the things, but some of the accusations is that Jesus isn't everywhere in the Old Testament. If you're finding Jesus in, under every rock, then maybe you're not interpreting the Old Testament properly. And here, Paul is literally finding Jesus in the rock. So uh, I, I appreciate how Paul looks at the Old Testament. He looks at the Old Testament. He looks at the people of God, the very people that were rescued out of slavery in Egypt. And he says, Christ, he says, the Messiah is the one who is leading them out of slavery. 
And, he, and we get, I think we get confused when it says spiritual food or spiritual drink. Most of us, when we hear the word spiritual, we think like not physical. We think spiritual is not physical and not spiritual is physical. And that's, a, that's, a, that's not a, a difference that the Bible would hold. The Bible actually talks to us about Jesus' resurrected body as being a body of or from the spirit. The physical body, the new creation body that Jesus has where he ate fish with his disciples, where they, where they touched his hand was a body of the spirit. So he's just saying that the food and the drink, all the provisions for, for the Old Testament people of God, all the provisions for the Old Testament people of God were actually provided by the spirit. They were provided by the spirit. They're rescued out. And he uses this weird phrase where he said he's baptized into Moses. And he's talking about the, the crossing of the Red Sea. They're pulled out of slavery in Egypt and they actually pass through the seas of judgment through, via Moses holding up the staff. They pass through the seas of judgment and they come out on the other side on dry, dry ground. In Pharaoh, in all of, all of the, the armies that were following them are destroyed by those same seas. It's a picture of baptism right there. It's the exact same thing with the, with Noah in the ark. They pass through the waters of judgment. They come out on the other side on dry ground in the new creation. So it's another picture of baptism. So in Christ, as the people of God, that's pointing us to the fact that we haven't passed through waters of judgment. We've passed through the very judgment of God. We've passed through the very judgment of God in our baptism and we're risen up with Christ as a new creation on the other side of that judgment. So Paul's just kind of stringing these things together for us because he's telling us about the Old Testament people of God the Old Testament church family, which would have been Israel, who would have went through all of those things, would have benefited from all the, the wonderful things that God did for them. And look at what he says in verse five. It says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. And if you know the story, they rebel. They rebel against God. And God says, because you've rebelled against me, that promised new creation, Israel, that land that I promised you, that I promised to take you, have I rescued out of slavery? You won't enter that land. In fact, every single one of you will drop dead in the desert, except for Caleb. And then there was all the children and the grandchildren and everyone else, except for that generation later, after, after everyone died except for Caleb, then God brought them into the land. And he's referencing that. And he tells us why. Look at verse six and seven. He says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. He says, look, these are stories in the Old Testament are examples for you. These stories in the Old Testament are examples for you so that you would not be idolatrous, that you would not desire evil. And I think about, I think about idolatry and it, it's, uh, it's hard because it's been in the news like in the last two days, the golden Trump statue. If anyone's seen that, oh my gosh. <laughs> so, okay, it's pretty ridiculous. <laughs> no matter which side of the political aisle you're on, it's pretty ridiculous. Um, and we think about idolatry and, we, and he's referencing or says the people got up to eat and drink when they made the golden calf. Moses comes down and sort of hears them celebrating as they, as they worship this false God, as they, they credit this thing uh, for, for saving them. And they even call the idol that they make Yahweh. Um, so it's super, super offensive worship of a, of a golden thing that they made. And we think about idolatry and it's easy to be like, well, I'm not at that conference with the, with the Trump statue, the golden Trump statue. So, so I, don't, 
I don't struggle with idolatry. But Paul, Paul's talking about idolatry, not always in the sense of, of bowing down to particular statues, but idolatry that happens in the heart. Idolatry that happens in the heart. You don't have to have a little, a little statue for that. And that, that actually comes up in the Old Testament. If you wanna look at Ezekiel real quick, um, another sort of random book of the Bible that we don't really go to a whole lot. But Ezekiel 14 brings this up. We'll just look at the first couple of verses in Ezekiel 14. But just make the point, this idea that even in the Old Testament, idolatry just isn't about worshiping a statue. And, and he says in verse one, Ezekiel 14 says, then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? And he's talking to Ezekiel, the prophet in Israel at the time. And the elders of Israel have idols in their heart. He's like, yeah, we're doing the worshiping at the temple like we're supposed to. Maybe they're even obeying the Sabbath or the feast or whatever. And they go to God and God says, should I, cons should I consult these men at all? Because they're coming to me. While they're coming to me, they actually have an idol in their heart. They're actually worshiping something they're actually valuing something. They're actually submitting to something in their heart that's not me, that's not God. And so this comes up even in the Old Testament and Paul kind of picks up on that. He mentions how our sin is ultimately idolatry in Colossians. But I really like how Paul David Tripp helps us sort of decipher these things. In the book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, uh, it's a really good book about how we can be a part of growing each other more and more in the beauty of the gospel. But in that book, when he talks about idolatry, he says a good thing or a bad thing becomes a God thing, which is an idol, like a false God, when it becomes a ruling thing. A good thing becomes a God thing when it becomes a ruling thing. And what he's saying is it doesn't have to be a statue. It can be anything that dictates who I am or how I act apart from God. Anything that rules me in my heart, anything that dictates who I am or how I act apart from God. It's a good thing. It could be a good thing, but it can become a God thing or an idol when it becomes a ruling thing. So Paul's talking about both, yes, external idolatry. We shouldn't, we shouldn't desire to bow down to any statues, but more often than not, it's internal. It's something that's become a ruling thing that dictates the way I act, that determines who I am, something that does that that is not God himself. And he goes on to give us a couple of examples, right? Kind of bam, 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 eight, eight nine, and 10. And each one of these has like a story from numbers and we could kind of get into that, but we'll just go through it real quick. He says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. In this situation, there was idolatry and it was not safe for the people of God in this situation to not deal with their idolatry. And then verse nine, he says, we must not put Christ to the test. Again, bringing up the Messiah in the Old Testament. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. This is a story about the fiery serpents, which was funny, Bridget asked me if, uh, if they were actually on fire or if it was just like, 
a metaphor for like their colors. And I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, think we'll know, but I like, I think about Daniel as like a terrified of snakes. I don't know if he's watching, but if one were to come up on fire, I think he would just be like, done, I'm out. <laughs> whatever, whatever it was, I completely repent. Uh, so, so um, but I, yeah, I don't, I, I think it was probably just describing the snakes. But he's making the point, there's another time where they were idolatrous. They were, they were, they were having something else other than God rule over them. And in that situation, it was actually like the food that they wanted. The food was determining how and when they wanted to worship God and they complained and they grumbled against him. So he sent these snakes. And then number, uh, verse 11, he says, or verse 10, it says, nor grumble as some of them did as were destroyed by the destroyer. And it's just another instance. These are all stories from, from the book of Numbers where the people of God, the gathered people of God weren't dealing with their idolatry. And so it was not safe for them. It was actually not safe for them. And I think about that, that we, we got grumbling, we got testing the Lord, there's sexual sin. I feel like complaining, complaining is an easy one that kind of shows what's ruling our hearts. Um, you know, a lot of, there's, there, whether it's a situation that I'm in, whether it's the way that someone treated me, whatever it is I complain about, God tells me that I should give thanks in all things, not because all situations are worth giving thanks for, definitely not, but because of what he's provided for us in the gospel. Every single opportunity, and we have, we have an opportunity to give thanks for what God has provided in the gospel. But when we grumble and we complain because of the circumstance or the person, now that circumstance is ruling me. Now I've made that person and how they treat me an idol that I obey. So I grumble. I think about our comfort is another easy one. Man, that's convicting. I like to be comfortable. I like to be well-fed. I don't like to be in awkward conversations with people. Maybe I do that one a little bit. <laughs> My wife's staring at me. <laughs> so, all right. <laughs> um, confess. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Gene. Your help with that, too. Um, but we, 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 don't, we like to be comfortable. Whatever our version of comfort is, we like to be comfortable. And, and when, when we're not comfortable, we, we don't have joy. When we're not comfortable, we don't wanna serve. When we're not comfortable, we don't wanna honor the Lord. And what's happening is, is our comfort and how comfortable we are is becoming the ruling thing. It's, it's an idol in our heart and I might as well build it up in gold and bow down to it because now how I live my life or what I do, or when I serve, or who I talk to, or where I decide to go out to eat, all, now that's become the thing that's dictating who I am and how I act with others. Now that thing has become an idol. And he says in verse 11, kind of reminding us of the point as he brings up some of these intense stories, he says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. The Old Testament prophets wrote these things down for you. We don't really think about the Old Testament that way. Peter says the exact same thing. We brought this up in our, you know, as we talked about Isaiah, the prophets knew that the things they were writing down weren't ultimately for Israel, they were ultimately for you. On those of us on whom the end of the age has come. God's people aren't just a little tiny nation doing a little thing in the Middle East anymore. God has a king sitting on a throne 
ruling and reigning over every power that could possibly be imagined in the face of this earth and, and in the spiritual realm that we don't see. We don't, we're not looking for a David in a throne in a nation anymore. That's, that's, that's nothing. We have, this, the end of the age has come. We now have a king sitting on a throne and the, everything that they were writing about in the Old Testament is what's being fulfilled and what God is doing right now through his son. So that's why we have the Old Testament. And he says, verse 12, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. As we think about even some of the situations I brought up with our our comfort or, or grumbling about stuff, it's hard to believe that in every single situation that God brings to us, there's a way to escape our idolatry. There's a way to escape our sin. Because if you ever spend any kind of time wrestling with your sin, it doesn't seem that easy. It's hard. And I think sometimes I think about situations where I would grumble and I'm like, Lord, why is this so difficult? Can you, can you like deal with this or something so, so I don't have to? Can you just magically wave a wand so that so I, I don't need whatever it is that I'm grumbling about? That's sort of how we look for a way of escape. Think about our comfort. Sure, we know we shouldn't, we should find our comfort in the beauty and wonder of who God is. How do we escape from that? I'm very comfortable sitting in my car at the right temperature when it's freezing cold outside. How do I I escape from this, this craving for comfort and find it ultimately in Christ? How do I do that? So how does the Lord ultimately provide a way of escape? And I think a lot of times we, we think he doesn't provide a way of escape because we don't like the ways he's provided. We just want him to change the circumstance. We just want him to magically change how we feel about a given situation. But I think a lot of the reasons why we don't like the way of escape is because it starts with our humiliation. We're actually gonna sing a song about this, the first song um, after communion, but it talks about humbling ourselves. It talks about confessing. Maybe the way of escape is to bring this sin to light so another brother or sister can encourage or exhort you. Maybe the way of, es- maybe the way of escape is just admitting that this is difficult and that it's not, it's, it's not something you can wrestle with alone. Maybe the way of escape is taking more time to plead with the Lord to change you and going before him in prayer. Maybe the way of escape is giving up something that you don't wanna let go because you don't believe that you can find all your joy, your peace, and your happiness in the gospel. We don't like, we don't like all the ways of escape. And he says in verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as the sensible people, judge for yourself what I say. And I love how Paul is just almost like a little bit in your face with that. He's like, look, I'm just, I'm just pointing to, to you how God has worked with his people who didn't flee from idolatry. I'm just asking you to look at scripture and you tell me, you're a reasonable person. 
Do you feel like it's safe to have sin in the family of God and not deal with it? Look at what the Bible says. And he goes on to kind of tell us why God is so intense a little bit about dealing with sin in the family, about dealing with sin with his people. And I think in a, in a, in a very real way, putting up with idolatry outside of the family of God is a much safer place to be. It's actually a safer place to be. And he goes on to talk about why it's not safe to not deal with sin in the family. He gives us two reasons why. And the first one he brings up is essentially that it's demonic. Our idolatry is demonic. And C.S. Lewis has a, has a really good quote about this because I feel like when we think of demons, we go all over the place. Um, and C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a book called Screwtape Letters. It's really good. Um, I enjoy it. C.S. Lewis was asked to write another one. And he was basically like, no, it's too disturbing for me. He doesn't want to have to like think about those things. But in the introduction to his book, he says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. One error. The other error is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The demons themselves are equally pleased with both errors. And what Paul is saying in, in Colossians when he's, is that our idolatry is actually a participation in demonic activity. Because the demons would want anything, would want you to submit to anything, would want anything to rule your life other than the creator of the universe. It, it doesn't matter what it is. As long as it's not God, they're happy with that. And look at what he says in verse 16. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. Talking about communion. The bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body for we all partake of, partake of the one bread. He's saying, look, we're, this is, this is a, a, a communal project. When, when, you, when we take communion together, this is kind of the beauty of communion. When we take communion together, all of us are participating in some way in what God has done for us. We're participating in the worship of our creator. And he, he gives an example from the Old Testament. He says, consider the, the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? It's like in the same way, at the altar with the people of Israel, they sacrifice and it's this communal participation in, in the worship of God. And, and I'm sure there are people who take communion in a way that they're not worshiping God. I'm sure there are people who are sacrificing in Israel in a that's not worshiping God. But he's saying, but because you participate in this, because you together participate in this, you're equally participating in some sense in the worship of God. And I like what he says then. He goes, well, then what do I imply then? Verse 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? He's saying, well, when you have idolatry and, you, and you, you let that idol rule your heart, is that actually a God or a thing? And he's like, no. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God, whether they intend it or not. I do not want you to be participants with demons in our idolatry. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord 
in the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord in the table of demons. That's intense. And I think that's why God takes sin in his family. That's why God takes sin in his family or idolatry in his family so serious. He wants us to be ruled and reigned by him. He wants us to follow the rule and reign of our heavenly father, of our king who died for us, of our king who sacrificed everything to bring us into the family. And when we're ruled by other things less than God, in a sense, that's demonic. I think it's encouraging what he says in verse 22. He says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? And I think that's a really encouraging verse because if we think about like the definition of jealousy, I Googled it. It says feeling or showing envy of something or someone with their achievements. And, and we read that and we're like, is God envious of our achievements? You know, like that's kind of silly. That's not, that's, that's probably not what it means. But uh, you go further down the dictionary list, but it says fiercely protective or vigilant of one's possessions. Fiercely protective or vigilant of one's own possessions. Shall we pro provoke our God and our family to jealousy? And I think about that, and the story that comes to mind is Jesus in the temple. The one time in scripture that Jesus got seriously angry, literally wrapped up and made cords and whipped people out of the temple, overturned tables. It's a story that's in every single one of the gospel accounts. Probably because the disciples were like, you remember when Jesus was super upset? <laughs> totally. <laughs> super awkward. <laughs> and in John, it says that the disciples remember, the disciples themselves remembered a psalm. They remembered a psalm. And it was Psalm 69. And Jesus, and, and it says in the psalm of the Messiah that zeal, which is the same word we get jealousy from, Zeal for my house will consume me. Where does God dwell today? In a temple made with hands or in the very people of God? If God was passionate about cleansing his temple that was gonna be destroyed not much further along after that, if he was that passionate about cleansing his temple how much more passionate is God about cleansing you? How much more passionate is he about his people that, that he's bought with a price, about his people being transformed more and more into the image of God, about the very, you, you are the very dwelling place of God and zeal for you consumes him on the throne today. The reason why it's dangerous for us to not deal with idols in our heart is because God loves you so much. The reason why it's dangerous for us to not deal with sin is because of how much he cares about you. He's intent. He's bought you. He loves you. He's concerned with you. He's protective of you. And he's not gonna let demonic things destroy you. That's why we're, it's so dangerous. Paul goes on to give us another reason why this is so dangerous. And he says it's, it's counter to 
It's completely contrary to our purpose in the first place. It's completely opposite to why God has called us out in the first place. And he brought this up at the beginning of the letter. He says, we've been called out from the world. We've been set apart in Christ. We've been made sufficient in our union with Christ so that we could be holy servants of God in the world. So that we can live for other people. And he reminds us of this purpose. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. This is the same sentence he actually used to start this whole section. And we talked about it a few weeks ago. All things are lawful, but it's almost like productive. He's saying all things are lawful, but not everything lends towards the glory and the beauty and the majesty of God. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Ben talked about this last week. There's a lot of things we can do, but not everything fulfills our purpose to build each other up in love. Not everything fills our purpose to, to care for others. The reason why God has united us to his son. And he gives a really good summary. I like this. It's almost like too simple. He says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Let no one seek his own good. And he's gonna end this section by telling us to imitate Christ as he does. Think about that. Jesus did not seek his own good for a second. Jesus had you in mind, zeal for his house, when he did everything he did, perfectly righteous. When he was patient with his disciples, when he cared for those who were poor, when he came down from the father and took on the form of a servant, all the way up to death on a cross, he did all of that, not for himself, but for you. Because that's, the, that's our purpose. He's calling us out so that we could have the, the power and the ability to look like Christ. And when we go after idols, or when we submit to things, not God, it's completely contrary to who we are. And he kind of gives a couple of like quick examples of sort of how to think about that as it relates to the Corinthians' very specific situation. He's like, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's like, look, people use things in idolatrous ways. Don't be looking for that. Don't be like trying to figure it out and be what he talks about later is asceticism, just, to, just like, whoa, this could be used for a bad thing, so I'm not gonna do anything at all. He's saying, no, don't do that. He's like, everything is the Lord's. There, there are wonderful ways to use these good things. We're not saying push everything aside just in case it's idolatrous. He wants us to deal with the heart. And then he says, if, one of the, if an unbeliever invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. It's like, if you're in a situation, who knows? They could have sacrificed it to an idol. They could be worshiping what's on the plate. But, but if, it's not, if, that's not the, if they're not bringing that up, just enjoy what God, the situation that God has put you in. And then he says, kind of the last thing is a summary of what, what Ben said in his sermon. He says, but if, if someone says to you, this has been offered in a sacrifice, if someone makes the point that this is something, this is idolatrous, this, this is something I do because it rules me and it reigns me. He says, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. Saying, why would you encourage them in idolatry? He says, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? And when you first read that sentence, it almost sounds like he's overturning everything Ben preached about um, last week. And, and he's not. And there's, some, there's a handful of different ways to interpret this sentence. But 
an easy way to think about it is Paul is like, if our entire purpose is to not offend anyone, if our entire purpose of who we are is to live for others and not ourselves, yeah, maybe I'm thankful, but I'm denounced if I'm not considering the other person because of their idolatry, which is why he concludes the way he does in verse 31. He says, so whatever you eat, whatever you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And we talked about this a little bit before as we kind of ramped up to this passage. There's a couple of ways to interpret what that means. We can do everything possible with our eyes fixed on the beauty and the glory and the wonder of our creator. The fact that he did everything for us and not for himself. Or we can interpret that as whatever I do should bring praise to God. My actions should lead to more glorifying of God. And, and both, of those, both of those ways to interpret that are, are, are acceptable as, as far as the grammar is concerned. And most commentators believe because those things go together. How can you do things for God's glory where he will be praised when your heart and your mind are not fixed on who he is and how wonderful he is? So he's, he's encouraging us then, if our whole purpose is to glorify God in everything, idolatry takes away from that. Idolatry fixes our eyes on something smaller than God. So we're impressed with beauty, sure, beauty, yes, like God gifted us with all sorts of wonderful, beautiful, amazing things. But when those things rule us, when those things determine what we do or who we are, when, when we hold those things like an idol, then we miss out. We're, we're looking down and we're not fixing our eyes on the beauty and the glory and the wonder of our creator. And then verse 32, he says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And most of your Bibles will take verse one and put it up in that paragraph because it's a conclusion. He's saying, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He spent four and a half chapters, four and a half chapters trying to help us wrestle with sin and trying to point us to the glory and the wonder and the beauty of God. And these things kind of interwoven throughout these last chapters because this, this, is, this lends to the very purpose of who you are. This is why God is so zealous for you. This is why zeal for you consumes him because he's determined to join you to his son and supernaturally, miraculously transform you to look like Jesus in a way that the rest of the world couldn't possibly understand. He's working to, to transform you into a way so that you don't live for yourself, but you live for others. And it's, it's crazy because you think about where our idolatry comes up or where our sins that we cling to or where are things about God that we don't find fulfilling and we go to something else. And I think about all these different things that get in the way, basically, of me looking like Christ. And I think the first thing we have to remember is it's his zeal that will accomplish this. The Old Testament says, not by might, but by my spirit. We're actually taught by the spirit of God. We actually have the spirit of God dwelling in us to enable us to accomplish these things. We actually have the holy, we have the third person of the Trinity living inside of you so that you would be able to fix your eyes on the glory of God and deal with your idolatry and your sin in your heart. 
It's, it's a, it's a, none of us should. None of us should look more like Christ, but we do because God is working to transform us. And he's given us ways to escape. He's given us means to do that. And I think we can get overwhelmed with, you know, if I stop and think about the ways that I sin and what I value more than Jesus and, and how I acted yesterday or this morning, it can be a little overwhelming. And we get caught up in that. And I think, but in, in a very real sense, this is why we worship. You guys are here today singing and reminding yourself and saying, look, this is the God that I worship. This is what should rule my heart. You're, you're listening to the word preached. You're, you're examining scripture and it's a spirit that uses the word to completely transform us. A, a, a bunch of us spent some time in prayer this morning because we think that that's valuable and God uses that to change us. And we've seen him answer prayer even over the last few weeks. And it's easy to get caught up in all the, the, the messiness of our life or the, the ickiness of our sin or the ridiculousness of the things that we love that are less than God. But in, in a very real sense, the means of grace are, are simple. We worship, we gather together, we confess sin. We have GCs, we have smaller groups that we encourage involvement in so that you can build relationships and encourage one another as long as it's called today. We have little tiny DNA groups that we call them it's just, it's just good ways for you to be thinking about how do I dwell more on the glory of God so that I can be transformed and look more like Christ. We have, we have a ton of these resources and a ton of sort of simple ways for us to be transformed more and more into the image of God. It's encouraging that God does that. And I think about all the people in this room and it's cool to see it's cool to see how God has been transforming you. And it's encouraging to me. I pray for you and I see prayers answered. I see people's lives look different. I see the simple things of prayer and confession and, and worship actually change who you are. That's wonderful. I was talking to someone who had been to a bunch of different churches over the years. Um, they traveled a whole lot and, and they've been to a lot of churches and sometimes they don't get that involved. Sometimes they just, sometimes they do. And they said, I've never been to a church where everyone is as nice as everyone here. And, I, and, I, and I, I'm comfortable because I know when I sin, and I'm sort of putting words, but essentially comfortable with myself because I, I do sin and people here are very kind. And we can work through that together. And it's just encouraging to see you guys confess those things. It's encouraging you to see you guys expose those idolatries and then to see God use our worship, God use our prayers, God use our time in the word to actually change and transform you. That's encouraging. I hope that's encouraging for you because I think God is actually transforming us to imitate Christ, to look more like him. And thanks be to God for such a beautiful gift, a spirit dwelling in us so that we have the power to deal with our sin because it's not safe, but he's zealous for us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are. Amen. Lord, we doubt you so much, and yet you are pursuing us at every front. We we struggle to see your beauty and that you give us little glimpses of it so that we can continue to be transformed into your son. 
Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in our community. I thank you for the, the lives that you're changing and the, the people who look more and more like your son. Lord, I know that there's some of us who are caught in sin and, and are, are wrestling with that, Lord. I pray that you would encourage us that we're doing what you called us to do. We're confessing those sin. We're bringing those things to light. And I know there's some of us here, Lord, that man, don't wanna bring those things to light. And it's difficult. The, the means of escape are often through humiliation, Lord. And Lord, I pray that as we fail, as we're humiliated, it would just remind us of everything we have in your gospel. We're not sufficient. No one here is. And, and you make us sufficient in Christ. You make us sufficient in what he's done and credited to us, Lord. So I pray that the, the reality of our sufficiency in Christ would be a motivation to bring our sin to light and deal with idolatry, even in your family, Lord. Supernaturally convict us of sin so that we could turn from it and cling to you more. I thank you for this morning and just for all the wonderful things you provide for us to, to worship in such a beautiful space and talented people in our, in our community to sing and to lead us as we consider you, Lord. I pray that as as we think about our idolatry, as we think about humbling ourselves, that that would be our posture even as we worship uh, the rest, rest of this day. And uh, thank you for just the means that you give us to consider these things. Uh, in your name I pray, amen.